We invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians this morning. 2 Thessalonians, you're finding your way there. You, you Perhaps if you uh, are a member of this church or been worshiping with us for a while, you could already tell that things are a little bit different this morning, can't you? Um, we spoke extensively about the changes that we are going to be making in the coming weeks and our members meeting, which took place this Wednesday. And so one of the changes that we're going to be implementing during simply the COVID season is that we are going to endeavor to abbreviate our services. I want to do so in order to bless those families with young children who might find it especially difficult to last 100 minutes or 90 minutes through a service, and so our goal is to be able to shave some of that time off. Of course, it's also difficult to sit here with these masks on, which we've asked you to wear over your mouth and nose, indeed, even as our governor has instructed us. And so we know uh, that doing so is a burden and a, and, a, and, a, and a significant burden at that. And so we um, are praying that if a shorter service might ease that, that burden. We also spoke, and we'll be giving more details out in the coming weeks, that our goals on September 13th is to move our corporate worship outside along the grass on the side of the church. And we're gonna do so for a number of reasons. So I'll lay those out for you as I did on Wednesday night. We'll talk more about the details coming forward. If you want more information on what, what, what's behind those decisions of your elders and you weren't able to come to our members meeting, we did a live stream that. You can find that on our YouTube channel. And that might be helpful for you to kind of see where we're headed as a church just simply during this COVID season. And so we're trying to implement those uh, realities even now so, uh, as you've already noted today. Um, during our service. And so here we are now, as we're excited to be in 2 Thessalonians once again, and I direct your attention to chapter 2, so we'll be considering the first three verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Once again, hear now the Word of God. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now that we could turn our attention to. We ask that you would help us. We ask that you would do a great and mighty work that this would not simply just be a man speaking and people listening, but there, there might be a great movement of your spirit here, both through the words that are proclaimed and the hearts that receive it. We pray that you, Holy Spirit, as you did in the Lord Jesus even, that you anointed him to teach your word, that that, that ministry, Holy Spirit, would continue even now in me, according to your grace, that you might use the words in which I speak to, to work in people's hearts, that you might open hearts today to receive this, your word, and that we might be changed, might be drawn closer to Christ and be more molded into his image, that even we pray chiefly that if there are those here or even in our live stream that might be watching and have not yet placed their faith in Christ, you would cause them to be born again, that they might believe and trust and be saved. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on June 28th, 1981, that Bill Maupin will wait in the nude for Jesus to appear and take him and his followers in the Lighthouse Gospel Tract Foundation to heaven, writes the Port Arthur News. 
Maupin 51 believes Bible prophecy points to an impending rapture in which God's followers will ascend bodily into heaven. Maupin's 40 or so followers have proven their faith by squaring away their personal affairs. One disciple has sold their home. Several have quit their jobs. Many of them will gather at their church in suburban Tucson on the 28th to await the rapture. So you thought he was a Californian, didn't you? I'm going to wear nothing on that day, Maupin said, for I will be dressed in the robes of righteousness. Now, I've read the Bible, and I'm sure many of you have as well. And we know in reading the Bible, it tells often of Jesus' return. And yet I have found nothing about getting ready for his return by disrobing. Amen? Amen? All right. And perhaps that's why Jesus did not come in 1981. He didn't want to see that at all. Of course, Maupin is not the first one to come up with this idea, as you know. One of my favorites is John Napier, the mathematician in the 17th century, the inventor of logarithms, which, of course, we use rather extensively today. He used his invention of logarithms to predict when Christ would return. Christ would return, according to Napier, on the year 1700. He wrote about it in 1688. His book went through, for the next 12 years, 23 different editions. Christ did not return in the year 1700. Joseph Smith, the founder of the cult Mormonism, said that Christ will return by the end of his lifetime. He died in 1891. Charles Russell, the founder of the cult Jehovah's Witnesses, declared that Jesus would return in 1914. He did not. NASA engineer Edgar Wisenot wrote his famous book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. It did not occur. Pat Robertson, in his book, The New Millennium, wrote that the world will end in 1990. And, of course, we all know Harold Camping, with his billboards all over the America, said the end is coming on May 11th, 2011. Once again, it did not. And we could go on and on and on and on. For some reason, we are fascinated with this idea of the end of the world. And people read the headlines and they think about this war or this earthquake or this new credit card chip or, or this pandemic and this president and they think, well, perhaps the end is near. Perhaps this is the end. Well, perhaps. But what is not in dispute is that the end is of interest to many, including the Thessalonians. In fact, if you remember back when we studied 1 Thessalonians, we noted that in all five of the chapters that Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, he, he talks about the return of Christ. And then chiefly chapter 4 and chapter 5 are dedicated to explaining what the return of Christ will be like. And now we find ourselves in 2 Thessalonians, and we've seen Paul continue to talk about that, have we not? We saw in chapter 1 that he writes about his coming in order to help them deal with the persecution in which they are facing, right? They're suffering. He says, I want you to know Christ is coming, and he will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when he comes on that day with his mighty angels. And so he wants to alleviate uh, their, their alarm uh, due to their suffering in light of the return of Christ. Now he writes again about the return of Christ in chapter 2, but this time not to deal with their suffering, but to deal with their deception. You see, this, this little church is dealing with persecution from the outside and deception from the inside. This is how Satan awfully, often attacks his people. He attacks them physically, as he continues to do throughout this world, and he attacks them intellectually, as he continues to do through false teaching. And by the way, when we get to chapter 3, he'll attack morally as well. And so this little church is, you know, in the ringer a bit, aren't they? 
And so Paul continues to teach about the return of Christ in order to combat the deceit that they have, and even more than that, to calm the hysteria that that deceit is creating. And so we come here to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You might be interested to know this, of all Paul's writings, this chapter is the most detailed on the events accompanying the return of Christ, which is somewhat amazing. I know we've read Daniel already this morning, now 2 Thessalonians 2. Uh, don't just skip over the fact we are, we are reading the, about the future. This is pre-written history. And it is stunning that we are given glimpses into it. And my intent is to take these 12 verses that Paul talks about the second coming over the next two weeks, t- today and next week. And so we'll, we'll talk about Christ's coming, and perhaps more than I ever have in my going on eight years of ministry here, I will get in more details of the return of Christ than perhaps um, I have heretofore. And yet, I, I do want to warn you, please prepare, be prepared to be frustrated, okay? In fact, I would say to you, um, please be prepared to be annoyed with me, okay? We're going to get a little annoying today. I'll let you know when that annoying part is in the sermon, uh, just so you can get ready for it. But what I mean by that is that you're, you're not going to get every question answered. I'm not going to bring out a chart or a table or anything of the sort. And uh, in fact, you will probably leave these two sermons with more questions than answers, and I'm not doing that intentionally. I'm just simply trying to teach what the, the Scripture tells us. And, of course, it does raise a number of questions in which the Bible does not answer for us. And so we leave those things to God, and we focus on the things that we can know. See, Paul's writing about the second coming of Christ not to satisfy their curiosity, nor yours or mine. Right? He, he wants to, to write about God's control. That's what he wants to focus on. And he wants to prepare them for the coming trouble and the current deceit in which they're engaging. You know, he refers to the deceit there in verse 2. He says to them not to be quickly, alarm, to quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a, 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 a spirit or a spoken word or letters seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. And so you, you see that what someone is teaching there that Christ has already come, which is interesting in light of 1 Thessalonians. Remember in chapter 4, they were thinking, why has he not come yet? He's not coming soon enough. People are dying, and they're all bent out of shape because, well, where is he? I thought he's coming. And now we get to 2 Thessalonians, and, and now they're, they're, they're all alarmed because he's come too soon. At least someone's teaching them that he's already arrived, and somehow they've missed it. They haven't been gathered to him. To use a silly phrase that's bantered around today, they've been left behind. Or perhaps, perhaps they thought, at least this, whoever's teaching this, is that the return of Christ is a spiritual reality, not a historical event. You read 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul implies there is that false teaching out there. And therefore, uh, the, whoever's telling them that Christ has returned is, is perhaps telling them the life in which they're now living is the kingdom of God in its fullness. Right? That this is the best things are going to be. That would be depressing, wouldn't it? Yeah, especially in light of their suffering. Of course, I will tell you this is a core tenet of mainline Protestantism. They do not believe, many of the Protestant churches in this land will not teach you that Christ's coming is an uh, external historical event, but rather a subjective internal event, that when you embrace the teachings of Christ, he comes to you. And in that way, he comes again as we uh, take his teaching upon, uh, in, into our hearts. And I want you to see that Paul rejects such an idea as he asks them to prepare for his coming, and even, I believe, he asked us to prepare as well 
uh, for this end. He does so, first of all, three points this morning. The first being is that we should beware of false teachers. Beware of false teachers. Why do they believe that Christ has already come? Well, we see it there in verse 2. Someone's teaching them this, either by a spirit or a spoken word or some forged letter. Paul says a letter seeming to become, come from us. So Paul's evidently unsure why they're coming up with this idea, right? But someone's clearly communicating this. You know, this, this idea of a spirit. Maybe someone had a dream last night, and they'd show up in church on Sunday morning and say, well, listen, I, I want you to know I, I had a dream, I had a vision, and he's come already, right? And then he, that person begins to teach us. This is how many um, uh, false faiths begin. Someone has a vision, like Joseph Smith had a vision, and off he goes. Or Muhammad had a vision, goes out in the wilderness, has this vision, starts a whole new religion, and off they go. And perhaps something similar was happening here in Thessalonica. Well, evidently, we see that these ideas had a profound effect upon them, didn't they? He says there in verse 2, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So these, these, these Christians, in light of this heresy, are, are unsettled. They're not clear-headed. They're off balance. They're alarmed. There's a state of jumpiness in them. They're, they're fretful and agitated and anxious, which is, I think, a common reaction to bad end times teaching. People begin to freak out. Right? People begin to lose their heads. Anybody remember Y2K? Right? A lot of people freaked out, didn't they? A lot of people lost their heads. They were quickly shaken in mind, and they were alarmed, just like the Thessalonians. And so uh, we, we see this happening in their life. And given the fact that they are suffering so terribly, as we saw in chapter 1, we can kind of understand. I mean, it would be a tragedy for them to live for Christ and to suffer for the gospel. And then, and then one, says, one, one shows up and says, oh, by the way, he's already come. This is the best life is. Sorry that you're suffering. This is just going to continue. It's not going to get better. And Paul sees them all anxious and confused in the, in the middle of this crisis of faith, and he seeks to solve their problem. So you understand, verse 2, they have an emotional turmoil going on. How does Paul solve their anxiety, their alarmness, if that's a word? He does so by giving them truth. He does so by giving them theology. We see Paul's pastoral care for this emotionally disturbed church is to give them doctrine. This is what he's already done in chapter 1 when they're suffering. You're suffering. It's very difficult to endure. How can we endure that suffering with a right mind? Paul says you need to understand Christ is returning. He's going to relieve you. That's truth. I'm taking truth. That's the salve to your emotional trouble in your life. And now they're once again unsettled about, about uh, this, this, this deceit. And Paul will take the next 10 verses from verse 3 all the way through verse 12 to uproot that deceit in their life and restore the peace of God through truth, through doctrine. As John Piper rightly says, studying and thinking and knowing are never ends in themselves. They always stand in service of feeling and willing and doing. So I ask you, Christians, how do you deal with your emotions? How do you deal with your anxiety, your worry, your bitterness, and all the rest? You can't sit just simply look at yourself and say, don't worry, what's wrong with you? You can't just simply go to God and pray, hey, help me not to worry. I'm filled with anxiety. You address the emotional turmoil in your heart with truth. As we reviewed last week, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you hear it all the time, stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Start bringing yourself truth. I've shared this example with you perhaps uh, before, but uh, when uh, Leger and I were foster parents in the process of adopting patients 
after having her one month old all the way up to age two, uh, the, the court, um, the, someone was petitioning the court to have her removed from our custody. And we sat down with the social workers and they said, listen, you're going to have to go to court and they're going to argue in court that they should, this little girl should not be with the Carnes. And the, we have learned that their, their argument that they're going to make is that Allegra is an unfit mother. And we were told you're going to have to sit through about eight hours of court and you can't say anything, you can't respond in any way, you can't provide any defense as they call up witness after witness telling how bad of a mother you are. And then the social worker went on and say, I think there's about 50-50 chance that this child will be taken from you. Well, you think that might have caused an emotional reaction? Yeah. Some fear? Yeah. Anxiety? Yeah. And so what then did we do? You know how many, as we, the days went by and the weeks went by as we waited up to that court date and all the different scenarios would play in my mind. What if this happens? What if they say this? What if, what if this happens? What's it going to be like when they take her from us? What if, how are we going to say goodbye? Do you think I might have thought of those things? Have you ever done something like that? How do we fight against that? Well, I'll tell you what I did by God's grace. I took, a, after about a couple of days of, of emotional anxiety, I took a piece of paper out. I literally wrote down eight promises of God. I put that piece of paper in my pocket and carried it around for the next three weeks. And I took it out many different, many times a day as, as the anxiety built up and I began to think about the scenario. I don't want to think these thoughts. Neither do you. They just start pop, popping in our mind. We're so passive. We just let them run wild. Instead, I, I told myself to shut up and I said, listen to the truth of God. God is sovereign. God is a father to the fatherless. And on and on I went. I fought the emotional turmoil in my heart with the truth of God. I didn't simply just pray, God, I'm full of anxiety. Please help me. I went to the truth to find help. And this is exactly what Paul's doing here. They are filled with anxiety. Paul doesn't, and Paul doesn't simply say, hey, don't be anxious. He doesn't say simply, don't be alarmed. He tells them why they should not be alarmed. In fact, that's an interesting word, alarmed, there. You see in verse 2, it's used only on one other place in the New Testament. It's in the mouth of Jesus in what's called the Olivet Discourse. When Jesus gives his end times teaching in Matthew 24 and Luke 19, I believe it is, and Mark 13. In fact, Jesus was saying, Mark 13, verse 7, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. There's the word. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. These are words that Donald Barnhouse used to great effect to produce peace in an anxious people in 1939. You see, the great preacher was scheduled to preach in Belfast, Northern Ireland, on a particular Sunday and yet, because of the stress of ministry, he thought it'd be best to, to steal away for a quick family vacation in France. He was warned, because of the turmoil that was taking place in, in Europe at that time, the rise of Hitler's Germany, that if he goes to France, he might not make it back to Northern Ireland in time. He went anyways. And almost as soon as he got into Europe, Hitler invaded Poland, and immediately England canceled all flights back to England from the continent. And so Barnhouse would drive from Paris, from Paris to the French coast. He would actually catch a, a ferry to England. And as he drove, he, everywhere he saw signs of the coming battles. The church bells were ringing across the French countryside as trains were packed with soldiers and their rifles in tow. He would catch the last civilian ferry that would cross the English Channel until after the war. And while he was visiting with the captain of the ship, the radio announced that the prime minister of England had demanded Hitler withdrawal from Poland 
or else England would declare war. When he finally arrived in London, it was as chaotic as Paris. The platforms were full of crying children being evacuated to the countryside as he boarded the train to uh, the, the north into Scotland to catch another ferry over to Northern Ireland, arrived in Belfast at 3 a.m. Sunday morning. The church was packed. Everyone was expecting war at any moment. The pastor said to Barnhouse, thank God you're here. I pray that God will give you something to say to the lads. This may be the last sermon that some of them ever hear. As Barnhouse was getting ready to mount the pulpit, one of the elders handed him a note, quote, no reply from Hitler, England has declared war. Barnhouse began his sermon with Jesus' words from Mark 13. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. And then he went on to explain his long journey from Paris to Belfast as he described each frightful scene. He would pause and then quote Christ saying, do not be alarmed. He would say, siren will sound and soldiers will be mobilized, but do not be alarmed. Millions of homes will be broken up, but do not be alarmed. Children will be torn from their mothers and their cries will represent the whales that are going up all over the world, but do not be alarmed. His biographer writes, as Barnhouse went through the litany of lamentations, piling monstrous grief on agonizing horror. The tension in the church was mounting. When he then shook his fist towards heaven and cried out, Oh God, unless Jesus Christ is Lord, these words are the most horrible that can be spoken to men who have their hearts that weep and bowels that can be gripped by human suffering. Men are dying. Do not be alarmed. Children are crying in their misery with no beloved face in sight. Do not be alarmed. How can Jesus Christ say such a thing? Well, then he gave the answer. Jesus Christ is God. He is the Lord of history. Nothing has ever happened without him knowing it. The sin of man has reduced the world to passion and fury. Men tear at each other's throats. Yet, Jesus is Lord, and everyone who believes in him will know the power of his resurrection and will learn that no event, no matter how terrible, can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My brothers and sisters in Christ, that is our hope in a world of trouble. In a world of war and weeping, in a world of disease and death, in a world of heartbreak and hardship, it is the truth that we are in Jesus Christ and forever shall be. I was reading in Isaiah 43 this morning in my devotional where the Lord says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That is our great legacy, Christians, that we belong to Christ, and therefore whatever may come upon us, Christ is right to say for those of us who will live forever with him not to be alarmed. Instead, we should be aware. Be aware of false teachings and be aware of what is to come, which is our second point this morning as you see Paul turns his attention to the future. He says we know Christ has not returned because two events must take place first. 
Look what he says in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So he says two things have to happen before Christ's return. One, the man of lawlessness must be revealed. Two, the rebellion must occur. He will then take verses 4 through 9 and explain the man of lawlessness. And then from verses 9 through 12, he will explain this rebellion. I mentioned we will consider those verses next week, but let me just introduce these two ideas to you this morning. First of all, Christ will not return until the man of lawlessness is revealed. Paul seems to be following Daniel here, who speaks of a single figure who will come before Christ, and he will be in opposition to God and the people of God. We also learn from verse 3 that this man will be destroyed. You'll see that very clearly in verse 8 when we get there. But now Paul calls him the son of destruction. His destiny is, if his character is lawlessness, his destiny is destruction. In fact, it's interesting to call him the man of lawlessness. I don't know if your translation says man of sin, as many have called him. The more accurate translation would be the man of lawlessness. It's literally anomos. Nomos is the Greek word for law. A is negation. The man without law. He has no law. And I think that's interesting. I think it's actually important because he is not the man of disobedience. He's not the man of sin. He's the man of lawlessness. You understand the difference between lawlessness and disobedience? Disobedience says, I know the law. I understand what's right, what's wrong. I understand this is prohibited, but I'm going to do it anyways. That's disobedience. Lawlessness comes and says, there's no such thing as a law. There's no such thing as right and wrong. Who's to say? Which is why he'll be called in verse 7. And again in verse 8, the lawless one. He is literally the one without law. Now, if there is no law, then who determines what's right and wrong? Well, you know the answer if you live in 2020, don't you? You do. You are the final arbitrator. Right? This is what we, how we live today. This is an idea that actually began in the 1940s. C.S. Lewis would write about it in his wonderful book, The Abolition of Man. And he would say, for the first time in history of the world, the intellectuals are saying every moral judgment is rooted not in eternal law, but by feelings. In other words, up to 1940, every culture in the world, for all times up to that point, understood morality to be rooted in an external and eternal law. Today, of course, our moral judgments are always subjective. They're always within us, right? And so if you say, well, uh, physical intimacy outside of marriage is wrong, what you're saying is you feel that it's wrong, and therefore it's wrong for you. If you say lying is wrong, what you are saying is that you feel lying is wrong, and therefore it's wrong for you. So Tim Keller would write, never be, ne never, there's never been a culture or society or religion until the 1940s that agreed there was no law, no external right and wrong. We may disagree on what that law was, but we never disagreed that there was one. Okay, and now, of course, this is the major understanding of reality today. In fact, Keller would continue, we have discarded in the last 80 years what every culture and every society and every religion has always believed. Your feelings don't matter. What's right and wrong is out there, an eternal law in which moral judgments are based. And yet the day in which we live, we would rightly call lawlessness. What a tweet. It's here already. In fact, you notice what Paul says in verse 7? He says, uh, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So the lawless one is coming, but lawlessness 
is already working its way out. And it seems like this lawless mentality will find its culmination in this single man who will declare, perhaps more, more clearly than anybody before him, I will not be ruled by another. I am a law unto myself. It will be the ultimate rejection of the created to their creator as he will take the very prerogative of God and say, I determine what the law is. And of course, it seems that this is connected to the second event that Paul tells us about, the rebellion. I see that there in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Note, not a rebellion, but the rebellion. This seems to be the climatic turning from God. In fact, I'm not sure rebellion's a great, a great translation. It's actually the Greek word apostasy. Apostasy. Of course, we have an English word, uh, apostasy. And it, it simply means to walk away from the faith. So Paul would write in 1 Timothy 4, late in the latter days, some will abandon their faith and follow deceiving spirits. That's apostasy, walking away. So it seems that the man of lawlessness and the apostasy are somehow connected. We see this in Daniel 11. That the man of lawlessness, perhaps through his blasphemy, perhaps through his deceit, is going to lead many who profess to follow Christ away from Christ. Again, this, this idea is not just Paul or Daniel. In fact, Jesus would te teach of it. Listen to what he said in Matthew 24. Many will fall away. That's apostasy. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness, there's that word again, will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And so what we learn is that before Christ returns, there will be a climactic catastrophic rebellion or desertion of professing Christians. They will walk away from Jesus, which seems to be Satan's chief goal, doesn't it? That through the man of lawlessness, he will induce many who have an attachment, an external attachment to Christ and his church to walk away from Christ and his church to their destruction. So I tell you, based upon the authority of the word of God, that is coming. You ought to be aware of it and to be prepared for it. Now, I say that because I, knowing that some of you think perhaps that you don't need to be prepared for it. Some Christians say, why do I need to get ready for that? I'll be raptured out of here before any of this begins. And so, sadly, I need to take the next five minutes and talk about the timing of the rapture, okay? Again, I did this a couple weeks ago. I've probably done it about four or five times in eight years of preaching ministry. I'm not sure I'll ever talk about it again. It is not high on my list of things to talk about. And I think there's no way reason for us to, though we might disagree on this issue, even amongst the elders we disagree on this issue, there's no reason for us to break fellowship or uh, have any ill feelings towards one another. I understand some of you hold to a pre-tribulation view of the rapture. I love you. I respect you. I respect your faith. I just happen to think you're wrong. Okay. I think you're wrong, according to this passage, for two reasons. In fact, I'll, be, I'll, I'll take a step further, and this is, by the way, the part I annoy you. Okay. Um, is I, I think it's clear that you're wrong. I don't even think it's hazy. Maybe, maybe not. And I will try to persuade you of that in five minutes, never to talk of this topic again. Okay? Okay. <laughs> the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture, if you're not familiar with that term, we believe that God is going to come in Christ and gather his people to himself. That is... Without dispute, all Christians believe that. We just differ on the timing of that. Those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture believe that Christ will return and gather his church to himself and then take them to heaven 
at which time the man of lawlessness, or what John would call the Antichrist, will emerge. There will be a great rebellion, a great tribulation. And at the end, Christ will come back with his church, and he will defeat all of it and usher in um, his millennium or his, uh, the new heaven and new earth, depending on what you believe. Okay, so that's pre-trib. The pre-trib, the rapture, happens before the tribulation. Okay? I think that, that this text cannot allow for that for two reasons. One is grammatical, the other is logical. Okay? And so we all say, yay, grammar, right? We all love grammar, okay, so uh, <laughs> all the homeschool moms, okay? Um, there's another 90 seconds of grammar, so if you're live streaming, go reheat your coffee, whatever you need to do. But I draw your attention to verse 1, when Paul says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him. See, there's two events, two nouns in the Greek. The coming and gathering, okay? I will tell you that there is... Two, two nouns there, coming and gathering, but one article, the direct article, the. Paul does not say the coming and the gathering. He says the coming and gathering. And so virtually every Greek scholar I consulted who know Greek grammar said something to this effect, as one scholar said, the single article shows that the coming of the Lord and the gathering of the saints are two parts of one great event. You go on to read verse 2, and now he's, he refers, the antecedent in verse 1 is gathering and coming, and now he just refers to it as one day in verse 2, the day of the Lord. To me, it, that, it, it, I don't find this ambiguous at all. This is very clear to me, that the gathering of the saints happens at the coming, or what he calls in verse 2, the day of the Lord. Okay, grammar's over, let's move to logic. Okay? Logically, I think this precludes a pre-tribulation view of the rapture. You notice that these Thessalonians, as we've already established, are shaken and alarmed that they have missed the second coming of Christ somehow. It's already come. They, they missed it. Now, if you believed in a pre-tribulation rapture and you had a bunch of people that are all upset that the second coming has happened, how would you comfort them? Would you not say, Thessalonians, you know the second coming of Christ hasn't happened because you're still here. Right? You have not been raptured. Instead, he says, you know the day of the Lord has not come because the man of lawlessness has not come and, it, and the rebellion has not occurred. He, he actually says what we expect him to say as if he believed in a post-tribulation rapture. Of course, that hasn't happened because we're waiting for the man of lawlessness to come. It's almost as if Paul expects them to possibly be around when this occurs. And therefore, they need to be prepared for it. Right? Not that he says that they're going to be raptured out of it and they, it has nothing to do with them. I mean, he, 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 he doesn't seem to be writing to people that think that, that will necessarily miss this because the rapture will come before it. And then, of course, he goes on, as we'll see next week, he describes uh, what the man of lawlessness is, what the rebellion's like, in order to get them ready for it. The natural conclusion seems to be is that he wants the Christians to be able to recognize the man of lawlessness when he appears, not that they're going to be gone when he shows up. And so I think he wants to prepare them for it. I want to prepare you for it. And that, that, that's the only reason why I'm really talking about this. Why do we even care? Well, it's for one small reason why we care about the timing of the rapture. Is if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you'll be inclined to disregard all these, all these warnings that we're going to consider over the next week. Because you think you're not going to be there for it. And I would suggest to you that scripture teaches otherwise. And therefore, you should be prepared. Like I said, I love you, respect you. We disagree on this issue. Perhaps that will give you something to think about. Um, but I want to equip you for that coming day. Should it occur in your lifetime... But I also want to equip you for this day, too, which we turn to our last point this morning, that we not only need to be prepared for what's coming, we need to be prepared for today. 
I've already mentioned in verse 7 that Paul uh, explains that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. John is going to say something very similar in 1 John 4, 3. He will say, the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world already. So John will tell us the Antichrist is coming, but he'll say already right now, the spirit of the Antichrist is here. In fact, in 1 John 2, he'll say, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. I think that's John's description of who Paul calls the man of lawlessness, in the same figure. But John goes on, so now many Antichrists have come. Many Antichrists have come, the final that will lead up to the final Antichrist. So we're probably not surprised, therefore, to learn that throughout the history of the church, the church has identified people they thought were, were the Antichrist, and were, evidently were not the Antichrist, but were, according to John, perhaps a Antichrist. And so the, the church that was being persecuted in the Patristic era, they looked to the Roman emperor and said, clearly this man is, is the Antichrist. And then in 325, the Roman emperor became a Christian, and so he can't be the Antichrist. And so they turned to the, the German barbarians and said, well, the Antichrist is coming from Germania. And, and, then, and, then, and then further on, then uh, Muhammad rises up, and you could read the Christian literature back then. They all understood that Muhammad must be the Antichrist as he's leading many professing Christians astray. And you finally get to the Protestant Reformation, and they all concluded, almost every single one, we all know who the Antichrist is, is the Pope. In fact, if you have the King James Version, read your preface. It will go ahead and identify the man of lawlessness for you as the Pope. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church turned around and said, no, it's not the Pope, it's Luther. Uh, he's clearly leading people away from other church. And in the last two centuries, we've been more, far more concerned with political leaders like Napoleon and and, and uh, Mao and Hitler and Stalin and all the rest. It must be the Antichrist. And see you one after another. It's here he is, here he is, here he is, here he is. Well, he's, uh, evidently, these, this is not the Antichrist, but certainly I think in John's language, he, yeah, maybe an A Antichrist, a man of lawlessness, a forerunner, a anticipation of this final man of lawlessness. So I tell you, the lawless one is coming, but you need to understand lawlessness is already here. Right? The Antichrist is coming, but many Antichrists are already here. Therefore, what that means is we simply don't prepare for a future day of trouble. We prepare for trouble in this day. And so how? Well, let me give you two points of application as we close. First of all, we need to be on our guard against lawlessness. You in your heart, Christian, I believe, have a desire to exalt yourself as the final judge, the final determiner of what's right and wrong, the final determiner of your life. I think you need to be aware of that tendency in your own heart. It's constantly reinforced today. You need to be true to yourself, we're told. You need to be the captain of your soul. It has invaded many of our churches, as many of our churches seem to have packaged the gospel as some consumer a gift that they give people, and they say, well, why don't you come to Jesus, and he'll make your life great? Why don't you come to Jesus, and, and he'll fix your marriage? Don't you, why don't you come to Jesus? He has a plan for you, a plan for your good, and, and to help you, not to harm you, but to prosper you. Why, why, why don't you come to church? We'll give you a religious experience, and we'll, we'll, you'll get all moved, and it'll be all very exciting. And, and we, keep, we keep packaging Christ as one who just kind of follows around and enhances our life. He's, it's like a seasoning we put on our life to make things better. We continue to live the way we want, how we want, but we add a little Christ to it, and everything is better. We need to beware of that tendency. That, I believe, will lead to apostasy. Many walking away from their faith when God is no longer providing the blessings that they were promised. 
And I think history is filled with examples of people walking away from Christ. In fact, I, I would guess that most of you know someone who at one time in their life was attached to Christ, attached to his church, and somehow has turned from him. Just as John would tell us in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they must have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain that they were not of us. They left. Usually this starts with a little drifting. Right? It usually doesn't start with what theologians call high-handed sin. It's just a little bit. A little bit of drift. A little bit of drift. A little bit of drift. And before you know it, you're as far away from Christ as you ever thought you could be. Right? So how many people say, well, I don't, you know, I think I'll sleep in on Sunday. I don't need to come to church. I had a long week. I'm tired. As if that's up to you. As if you are now the determiner of what you do on the Lord's Day. As if you are judge. Of course, when I say that, I, I'm in no way impugning those who are live streaming today due to uh, certainly high-risk issues and not in any way trying to address that. But there's that tendency. I think I'll come. I don't think I'll come. I think I'll do this. I don't think I'll do this. We do this all the time, that we are the final arbitrator of what's to happen. It's just a little drift, a little drift, a little drift, and before you know you're far, far away. It's just a little flirting. It's harmless. It's just lunch. It's harmless. It's just emails. They're harmless. And one day you've made a wreck of your life, and you're a thousand miles away from where you would ever be. And there you find yourself far, far away from Christ. We have that tendency in our own heart. Beware of it. Now, you might say, wait a second, Pastor, are you telling us we could lose our salvation? No, we cannot lose our salvation. Amen? Amen? We praise God that once we are saved, we are his and shall be forever. I could draw your attention to about a dozen verses that are emphatic on this. Perhaps my favorite is Philippians 1 and verse 6. I am confident in this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, will, will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Right? You cannot lose your salvation. Yet, we also read verses like Hebrews 3, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so he, the author of Hebrews writing to Christians says, beware, make sure your heart's okay. Listen, there are many people who are attached to Christ and his church, but only outwardly, externally. And eventually they will show that they're not his at all. Judas, of course, would be the prime example. You would have looked at him and said, of course he's a Christian. He's been following Christ for three years. Can't be more attached to Christ. And yet Judas, unlike Peter, who also re rejects Christ for a time, does not return. Peter's confronted with his sin. He weeps and repents. Judas is confronted with his sin by the Lord, and his heart just grows hardened. So be, my, my brothers and sisters, lawlessness is here. It's in you. Be aware of that tendency in your own life. Secondly and lastly, I will tell you by way of application, we need to be busy with righteousness. Be busy with righteousness. Listen to the words of our Lord in uh, uh, Mark 13 and verse 32 when he says, Concerning that day, no one knows. You need to hear that again? Concerning that day, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. When is Jesus Christ returning? Answer, no one knows. The best-selling author doesn't know, right? The TV preacher doesn't know. The billboards don't know. Okay, the angels don't know. Even Jesus, at least at this time, did not know. No one knows. That is Jesus' answer. It could not be more clear. Therefore, instead of us trying to figure out when he's coming, let's be like, 
Let's become like the kid who longs for their dad to return home from work. I love how Alistair Begg puts it. He says, remember when your dad was at work and he's working late and, and you, would, you would lie in bed, it was your bedtime, but you wouldn't go to sleep because you're waiting for your daddy to come home, right? And you would listen to the cars outside. Anybody have this memory? You listen to the cars drive by. You could almost tell your dad's car. You could like the sound of your car, especially when it pulled into the driveway or the garage opened. And then you would hear your dad walking in the hallway and you could always tell your dad's stride, right? You know that's dad. And he would come in and perhaps lay his hand upon your head and speak a blessing or offer a prayer or whisper in your ear, I love you, son, and tell you I'm so proud of you, my daughter. I'm so glad you're my daughter. And then you would fall off asleep right? at total peace. Dad's home. The family's together. Everything's going to be okay. Well, imagine if your dad was away on business and you were sitting in your room looking out the window and waiting for your dad to come home and and your friend comes over and, and he finds you and you're, you're surrounded by all these charts and tables. Right? He says, what you doing? He said, well, I'm waiting for my dad to come home. And he says, okay, well, what, what are all these things? What, what, what's all the diagrams and all that? And you turn to him and you say, well, that, that shows that my dad's coming home today. In fact, he'll be home any minute. And your friend says, really? What, what do you mean? Explain it to me. And he says to you, well, listen, my, the hotel my dad's been staying at, its address is 1944 Elm Street. Well, my dad's dad's middle name was Elmer. And in 1944, he went to France in war. And if you drop the vowels from the word France and add up all the numerical values assigned to the consonants, you get 24. Now, dad's been gone seven days, and seven times 24 is 168. 168 actually happens to be the hotel room in which he's staying. Of course, I'm 12, 168 divided by 12 is 14. 14 is the sum of 10 and 4. 10 being the uh, biblical number for a long time. 4 being the, the number of completion. Of course, my dad has been gone a long time. Is it at completion? Well, what's today's date? Just happens to be the 14th, doesn't. Therefore, dad could come home at any time. Okay? And so your friend looks at you and says, okay, you think your dad's coming home at any time? You say, yeah. Yeah, this proves it. And he says to you, well, don't you think you should cut his grass then? Don't you think you should honor his wife then? Don't you think you should honor and love his daughters then? In other words, if we think trying to figure all this out means that we're waiting for Christ, we're dead wrong. Christ told us how to wait for him, didn't he? Right? Let the master of the house find you doing what he has called you to do. Not sitting idly trying to figure it out. Get to work in righteousness. If we believe Christ is coming, and we must, then our moral vigilance will be unbelievable. That our zeal and evangelism would be unstoppable, and our prayerfulness would be undeniable. Perhaps you heard the fictional account from the three demons sent by the devil to tempt mankind in the world. The first devil laid out his plans to, to Satan, and he said, well, listen, I'm going to go down, I'm going to tell them there is no God. And the devil said, that will never work. They know in their hearts God exists. The second devil come, uh, demon comes to the devil and says, listen, I'm going to go and tell them there's no hell. Well, the devil says, well, that will never work. And they know in their heart that sin requires judgment. The third demon comes to the devil and says, I'm going to tell them there's no hurry. The devil says, go and you will ruin them by the thousands. I ask you, Christian, 
Is there any hurry in your life? Any hurry to obey? Any hurry to follow after God? Is there any hurry to love your wife better? Any hurry to honor your parents better? Any hurry to witness to that neighbor that you've been intending to witness to? Any hurry to repent of anger and bitterness, to seek reconciliation with a church member? Any hurry to begin to memorize scripture, to become a man or woman of prayer? Any hurry to trust in Christ for salvation? We know that he came a first time. The Bible tells us he did so in order to pay for our sins. This is why he died upon the cross. Not because he has sinned, but because we have. And he took all our sin upon himself. He was punished for my sin and for any, anyone's sin who would believe in him. And three days later, he's raised from the dead. Now he offers anyone in this room or anyone on this live stream or anyone anywhere, if they would simply place their faith in Christ, they'll be saved. All their sins will be taken care of. They'll be united to Christ and live forever with him as his follower, as God's daughter, as God's son. And so many people say and believe that perhaps and say, well, I'll get to it one day. I'll get to it one day. Any hurry for you, my friend? Any desperation? I tell you that Christ is coming. I wonder how he will find you. May we not wait till tomorrow to be faithful to what he has called us to do today. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word and the great blessing that it is to us. We are encouraged at the very least to know that our Lord is returning, troubled somewhat by the events that will accompany it. But what great joy in our heart it brings to know that Christ is the soon coming King and will make all things right. And so help us to be faithful, even as we are aware of the lawlessness in our own heart. Help us, help us to be busy with the work that you've called us to do, namely that we might be like Christ and proclaim his gospel. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.